0: Find out more at ReadingTheBibleLands.com This episode of Live the Bible is brought to you by Walking the Bible Lands. If you haven't been to Israel yet or you'd like to relive your tour, these on-site videos are the next best thing to being there. Check it out at com. Hello and welcome to Live the Bible, My name is Wayne Stiles, and this is the podcast that helps you connect the Bible to your daily life. And we're continuing our countdown of our most popular episodes of all time. Our number three episode challenges us to be honest with ourselves about a very tough question. How often do you feel the need to be in control? Hmm, Like always, right? Well, rest is something that we all long for and need, but we can only find it when we let go of pride and truly trust God, and that can be so hard. So how do we do it? Well, the key lies in a psalm that includes just three verses. Short and sweet, but we can sing it again and again in our walks with God. I'll be back in a bit, but for now, let's get right into the podcast. I've discovered there are two types of humility. Humility comes to us in a couple of different ways. First of all, there's the hum- the humility that we choose for ourselves, and then there's the humility that's chosen for us. Sometimes we call that humiliation. <laughs> <laughs> a couple years ago, I stopped at a stoplight, and I was like the first or second person at the stoplight. And you know, most times you're sitting at the stoplight are uneventful, you just You know, you're just there waiting for the light to turn. This was a major intersection up in Denton. And I looked in my rearview mirror because I saw some movement. And you don't usually see movement when you're sitting still with a line of cars behind you. And there was a guy on a skateboard who was weaving back and forth through the cars. And, uh, you know, he didn't have a shirt on. He was, you know, probably 18, 19 years old. Uh, really, was a, he was really clearly excited about the fact that he was skilled at his skateboard. Weaving back and forth, and, you know, he was, he was even kind of you know, doing his arms up like this, you know, as he was go, And I just thought, wow, you know, that, that guy's really excited about his abilities. And then he zooms right past me. And, of course, I'm stopped, and the traffic is going this way. And I thought, you know, I wonder what he's going to do. And he intended to turn. Uh, he c- comes down and he starts to turn right and he leans like this to try to turn to the right to go with the traffic. And his skateboard leaves him and rolls out into the intersection. He rolls out into the intersection. And of course, all the cars start dodging him at 40 miles an hour. The most surprised person is him. As he is, you know, standing up there dodging all these cars, one van hit his skateboard and it bent it and sent it spiraling about 30 feet into the air. Well, the light, the light changed, and he grabbed his skateboard and limped off somewhere to hide. And, uh, you know, light changed, and we all just kind of moved forward. I thought, you know what, that's, that's kind of a neat way to sit at a red light. <laughs> That's most fun I've had at a red light in a long time. And as I was driving off, thinking about uh, Mr. Center of Attention, I thought about the proverb, Proverbs sixteen eighteen that says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. You know, humility is something we love to see, uh, a number of us were at Ray's funeral yesterday. And When I think about Ray's life, I think about a man who was humble, genuinely humble. He would not tell you that he spent more than 40 years uh, in Papua New Guinea translating the New Testament into two different languages. You'd never know that by looking at this humble, unassuming little old man. Um, but that was Ray. He was humble, genuinely humble. We're thrilled when we see people who are obviously gifted, and yet at the same time humble, like the occasional Olympic athlete, like the occasional movie star. We expect it from people like our pastors, you know, they'd better be humble, you know. (laughs) But with us, it's different, isn't it? We sort of begin with the assumption that we're humble as we're in conversations with people. And marketers know this. You know, it was mentioned earlier today. Just look at the at the magazines. We've got Vanity Fair, Body Builder, Self. I keep looking for magazines on the rack that are going to say, you know, Humility and You. <laughs> you know, or servanthood today or love illustrated of course that last one might get some purchases (laughs) but you know humility humility is sort of the opposite of feeling a huge need to be in control you may not initially make that association but it's true it really is there a person who demands to be in control is not a humble person. And when we are struggling with control in our lives, I think humility, or the opposite, pride, is really the root of what it is we're struggling with. There is a simple, short psalm that David wrote. I'd like you to turn to Psalm 131. Psalm 131. Psalm 131 is right in the middle. Of a series of psalms in the book of Psalms, called the Songs of Ascents or the Psalms of Ascents. The Psalms of Ascents were those songs that were sung uh, several times a year by all the men, at least by all the men, and many of their wives and children who accompanied them up to Jerusalem for the uh, the feast, three feasts, three major feasts that occurred every year. And when they would ascend, they would sing these psalms, the songs of ascents. And they cover a variety of themes. I don't know if you've ever thought about that in the sense of looking at these psalms, but next time you read through the psalms of ascents, notice the various themes. They're very practical. They focus on the essentials of the spiritual life for a believer, Uh, Everything from your walk with God to your priorities to your uh, relationships at home. And Psalm 131 is so simple, so short, but it focuses on something absolutely essential for us as believers, and that's humility. So let's uh, read through these verses, we'll just take them one at a time. And the great thing about only looking at a few verses is you can really dive deep. And there's some great truth in this text. Verse 1, a song of a sense of David. O oh Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty. Nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. It's a prayer. And it begins by David's confession that there is not pride in his heart. My heart is not proud. When pride starts, it starts in the heart. It's like a cancer that grows until it permeates every part of who you are. I can't think of a better uh, illustration of pride than cancer. A cancer that is metastasized. And it just becomes, you can't separate pride. I remember once being at a, a in the vet's office for one of our dogs. And I don't know if you've noticed, but when you're in the vet's office and you're sitting there, they stick you in the room and they make you wait in there for like five minutes before the vet comes. At least they did used to do years ago. Now, a lot of times you wait out in the waiting room with a bunch of other sick dogs. And... <laughs> Anyway, but years ago, you would sit in the waiting room and wait for the vet to come in. And while they're there, they have these posters all over the wall meant to scare you. And one was that showed this picture of a bisected dog's heart that had that had heartworms in it. It was gross. I mean, the heart, you could not. And you couldn't distinguish the heart from the worms. It was it, The worms were so metastasized into this heart. It's like, there's nothing you can do to that dog but kill it, but put it down. And, of course, they're wanting you to buy their heartworm pills. That's, that's the goal. But I thought, you know, I can't think of a better illustration of what pride can do if you let it run its course than that poster in the vet's office of a dog's heart with heartworms. Pride can take over your life and your heart, and every part of who you are is affected by it. The heart is not proud. That's internal, and that's how you view yourself. But then he goes on to say, nor are my eyes haughty, haughty. Haughty is not really a a word we use a lot. What does haughty mean? You might have in your margin another reading there that says lofty. And that, that might give us a better sense of what the Hebrew word there means when it says that your eyes are lofty. This is, this is, if your eyes are lofty, then to look at others, then you have to look down. It's that kind of a sense, of looking down on others. And, you know, I'll be honest, as I've thought through this psalm through the week, uh, there are a lot of times I have had haughty eyes this week. Lofty eyes this week. And... Um, So let me just give you a couple of examples and then you can quickly think about yourself and not think about me. Driving. Have you ever noticed how many idiots there are on the road? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, really. As I was teaching our daughters to drive, one of the things that I taught them was you've got to watch out for the idiots of the road because they are there. An idiot on the highway is anybody or a maniac that, that drives faster than you and an idiot is usually one that drives slower than you in front of you. <laughs> but a haughty, haughty eyes, haughty eyes looking down on others is the thought that you know their situation well enough that you can make a judgment of it. Like, I know the reason that this person is driving that way and in my mind you know they're, they're an idiot, but the reality is they may not be an idiot at all. Who knows what went, what's happened in their life this week? Not true. They just that may be the way they always drive. But the fact is you don't know. You don't know that maybe they had something really hard happen in the last fifteen minutes that they're dealing with. That they're distracted. Uh, you just don't know. And so to come to come uh, in a judgmental a judgmental attitude, somebody on the road, somebody in church, somebody um, in the supermarket, wherever it is that you are, you are walking in your daily life, and you look at somebody and you think, they just don't have it together. Well, who does? You have it together? I don't have it together. Our heart is proud and our eyes are haughty when we look down at others. And the reality is we have no idea what is going on in the life of somebody else. David says, I'm not going to do that. Uh, First of all, my heart on the inside is not going to be proud. And on the outside, I'm not going to look down at others. And then he goes on, and I love this second part of the verse where it says, nor do I involve myself in great matters, or in things too difficult for me. Literally, the Hebrew says, I don't go after or I don't walk after great matters. The New International Version says, I don't concern myself with it. In other words, I don't worry about the things I can't control. And I don't know if you've noticed, but that's pretty much everything. It really is. But our problem is we do involve ourselves in matters, in great matters that are too difficult for us, because we desire to be in control, which is rooted in pride and rooted in independence from God. God has designed us to be dependent on him, not independent of him. Our desire is to be in control and to be independent from God. And this temptation goes all the way back to the garden. Remember what Satan told the woman? He said, "In the day God knows that in the day that you eat from it your eyes will be opened. You'll see reality." You know reality is you will be like God if you eat this. Well, that was a that was a lie. God has not designed you to be like God in that sense that you are independent, self-sufficient. God has designed you to be dependent on him in your life. He has created you to need him. And any situation that tempts you to be independent of God is a lie and is ultimately for your destruction. It was our par- our parents in the garden, it was their undoing. And it resulted in pride. Pride was the sin of Satan, you remember. Uh, we're told to not lay hands on any deacons too soon, the New Testament tells us, lest they be guilty of the sin of pride, of arrogance. But they are to be be watched. Their lives are to be watched and uh, see if they model the humility that it takes uh, to be a leader. So, are you trying to control things? Uh, David says, I accept the limitation. It's a great, maybe a great paraphrase. I don't involve my things in I don't involve myself or worry about the things I can't control. I accept the limitation that God has put on me. And this admission is not a defeat. It is not a weakness. It's a benefit. As you, as a believer, recognize that you're going to live as God designed you to live. You can't control anything in your life. Your health, your job, the economy, your spouse, your kids. Now, you affect all these things by your actions, by your words, but you control none of it, none of it. So, uh, think uh, through the years as I've carried this psalm with me, that the end of the, the first verse there is something that's given me great peace, and I really encourage you to meditate, if not memorize, Psalm 131, verse 1 where he says that I do not involve myself in things too difficult for me. You're going to be placed in positions in your life that are too difficult for you. And I love the marginal reading there for verse 1, the end of verse 1. In things too difficult for me, another reading is too marvelous for me. And I like both of those renderings because we tend to start facing the situation with it being too difficult we face a situation that's hard and we say, this is too difficult, this is overwhelming, I can't deal with this. But on the other side of it, on the other side of God's sovereignty in it, we look back on that difficult situation that was far too difficult for us and we define it as marvelous. Because the Lord was sovereign. And the Lord took care of a situation that at the time seemed too overwhelming and too difficult for you. And, instead, and all the while, God had it in his hands. So if we aren't to be proud, and if we're not to be arrogant, and we're not to be haughty, we're not to involve ourselves in things that are too difficult for us, which is pretty much everything, then what are we to be? Are we, are we to be you know, wet noodles and wimps? Does that mean we just kind of roll over and say, you know, well, I, I just can't do anything. I'm, I'm just going to be humble. That's not humility. We have Jesus Christ as our model of humility. And Jesus was anything but a wet noodle. He was a strong man, the ideal man. Jesus was our model, and Jesus our model. Remember who Jesus held up as a model of humility? A child. A child. And that's exactly what David does in this very next verse. Look at verse 2. He says, surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. This is a great metaphor or a great uh, simile. This comparison of our soul to a child that is weaned. A child is given as the illustration, not uh, as an illustration of helplessness, but of humility. A child is willing to be led, willing to be taught, believes what you'll tell them, and um, and it's not just a child, but it's a child that's been weaned. You ever tried to wean a child, uh, you know, from his or her mother's milk? It's a challenge, uh, and. Only recently has the weaning process been measured in months rather than years. Back in the day, in ancient days, uh, I guess before there were bottles or whatnot, uh, weaning could go on for a couple of years. I mean, the 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 nursing process would be a couple of years, and weaning was a tough. I mean, can you imagine weaning a child that can talk to you? <laughs> It's not something we usually deal with a lot. Uh, I remember when we were in the process of of getting one of our daughters off of the sippy cup onto a real cup. We were sitting at the breakfast table with juice in, in the real cup, and I took the sippy cup away, and I gave her a cup with no lid on it. You know? Probably three seconds later... That cup was hurled at me. (laughs) Juice everywhere. And she had this red look on her face. No, is what she said. Weaning a child is often their first experience at self-denial. And um, if you've ever done it, you know how difficult it can be. The illustration of a child, of of a weaned child resting on his mother of a child resting on his mother at peace now don't mix don't confuse the metaphors god is not the mother that we're resting on here we're the mother we're the mother if you if you if you look at it closely look at the parallelism in the in the lines hebrew poetry teaches us through parallelisms. One line is paralleled with the next line, or one line emphasizes or or elaborates or or, uh, explains the line that came before it. So when you look at this, verse 2, like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. So you see, the mother and me are parallel. And I don't know, again, your margin may show you this, but literally... In the New American Standard, it says against his mother and then within me. It's the same Hebrew word. It's the same Hebrew word. It's the word upon his mother or with his mother and with me. I wish that they translated it uh, the same because the word is the same in, in Hebrew. Like a weaned child with his mother is my soul. My soul is like a weaned child with me. In other words, you have been weaned from your pride. This is what the psalm is teaching. And it is a process, isn't it? Just like trying to wean a child from his mother. When you put when a child that is not weaned is placed upon his mother's breast, that context triggers in that child a need that you can't stop once you've started. There's only one way to stop it, and that's to to give the child what it wants. Think about your soul in a context of whatever triggers it to have pride. This is saying that you have grown to such a point that your heart is not proud, your eyes are not haughty, you've given to God the matters that are so great that now you can be placed in a context that used to trigger your pride. But instead, you were in that context, and you were weaned from it. Like a weaned child rests against his mom. You're perfectly at peace. And the word for soul there in Hebrew, we tend to think soul is simply the immaterial part of who we are Um, because we don't really have a word that that translates the Hebrew word nephesh means not just the immaterial, but the material. Basically, your whole person, all of who you are, physically, spiritually, emotionally, is at peace. Because you are trusting not yourself any longer, but you're trusting in the Lord. So, just take a moment and think about what is the situation in you that triggers your pride. What is the context that you can see a pattern in your life that triggers your pride? Hey everyone, Wayne here. There's nothing that's going to make you fall in love with the book of Acts and the New Testament epistles, like traveling to the places where they occurred. Well, you can. Registration is open and it's well underway for my upcoming tour and cruise to Greece and Turkey in the footsteps of the great Apostle Paul. There's even an optional extension to the great cities of Rome and Pompeii. Going to these Bible lands will change the way you read the New Testament. I'm certain of that. Just see the video and the complete itinerary at waynestyles.com tours. And now, back to the podcast. Just take a moment and think about what is the situation in you that triggers your pride. What is the context that you can see a pattern in your life that triggers your pride? that triggers your sense of arrogance or that makes you feel haughty and better than other people? What is that? You know, I've answered that question for myself. I'm sure there are many answers to that for myself. But one of the things that really triggers my pride is injustice, uh, personal injustice. Injustice and unfairness in a context of abuse of power—that um, is a challenge for me to keep my mouth shut. And so, let me quickly dodge that and have you turn with me. Keep your finger there in Psalm one thirty-one, but turn to First Peter, First Peter 2, 21 and let me show you a verse that has been tremendously helpful to me in the in those moments when. My pride gets triggered, and maybe it might help you as well, particularly in a context of injustice. 1 Peter 2, look down at verse 21, 1 Peter 2, 21. Once again, Jesus is, a, is our model of humility. And, and Peter writes these words, starting verse 21, "...you've been called for this purpose, Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Now watch this. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. When you are in a situation that is unfair, that is unjust, when you are reviled, whether it is in a close relationship or whether it is the idiots on the street driving, and they're there, watch out for them. How are you to respond? You don't revile in return. While you are suffering, you utter no threats. But here's what you do. Like Christ... You entrust yourself to God, who judges righteously. You don't think God sees. You don't think God knows what it is that you're dealing with—the inequity, the injustice, the unfairness, the misunderstandings. Those are the worst, and particularly in a context where, for whatever reason, maybe somebody dies, and you don't have the chance to go back and say, "Wait a minute." You got that wrong. You got that wrong. You don't have that opportunity. You keep entrusting yourself to him who judges righteously. Back to Psalm 131. How can we have such an incredible peace to not have pride in our hearts, haughty eyes, to feel like we've got to control all situations? How can we have this composed and quieted soul like a weaned child upon his mother? Verse 3 tells you how. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Hope in the Lord. David advises that we be weaned from our pride, from being in control, and to lay content totally to trust in God's ability to do what we can't. And notice he says to do this from this time forth. In other words, if you haven't been doing it, now's the time to start. This time. Today. If you haven't been trusting God, if you've been proud, if you've not been trusting Him with whatever it is that you can't control, from this time forward and forever, (laughs) it's not just a decision that you make today, it's a decision you make every day. That your hope is in the Lord. It's not in your own ability to solve the problem. Corey Ten Boom was once asked how she stayed so humble with so much popularity and all the worldwide fame that she was given. And she said this, she said, When the donkey carried Jesus into Jerusalem and the people cheered and shouted praises, did the donkey think it was all for him? <laughs> Isn't that great? Um, we've all got our donkey stories. I remember one time I was up on the square in Denton, and it was one of those days that was raining really hard. You know, it's raining so hard that you can't see 10 feet in front of you. And, um, I worked up on the square at that time, and so I parked at the square and got out of, you know, a typical mail. I didn't have an umbrella. Who needs an umbrella? You know, real men don't use umbrellas. <laughs> yeah. Well, real men get wet, too. So I parked, you know, and I had to go somewhere. I thought, well, there's no way around this. I've got to make this fast. And I didn't have a raincoat on. I didn't have a raincoat on. I got out of the car, and you, you, when you try to do stuff real fast, sometimes it doesn't work. So I got out of the car real fast, you know, shut the door, locked the door, slammed the door, and turned, and my... <laughs> Uh, raincoat was stuck in the door, and so I, you know, came over and sort of started pulling on it, and it was really stuck in the door. So I thought, well, maybe I just need to pull a little harder. <laughs> so as I'm sitting there pulling on it, I, I look over and the the merchant in the the jewelry store, you know, the owner of the jewelry store is inside, standing at his, watching me. <laughs> He's got his coffee and he's just kind of watching me. And so I thought, okay, so I pull my coat and it starts to come a little bit. So I pull a little harder and I rip a two foot hole in my, my raincoat. And I look back at the guy and he's got all his employees. And there's no way around it, so I have to find my keys and unlock, and, so I, and now it's my turn to limp, limp off with my skateboard. <laughs> you know, those we've all got those stories. You didn't ask for that. But, you know, we're put in situations where we are humbled. Humbled. Um, and honestly, that's good for us. It really is. Because we can go a long time without being humbled. We can build walls of pride and protection around us to where nobody is going to climb that wall. We're not going to let anybody humble us. And sometimes God just needs to rip your raincoat. (laughs) He really does. And it's not vindictive. It's not cruel. It's not cruel. But those moments where humility is forced upon us are healthy moments. They're good for us. In fact, I challenge you the next time something like that happens to you, and you can get to a place where you can let your heart rate calm back down and and get the big sense of it, to actually say these words, that was good for me. Um, Let me read you you some verses. You don't need to turn there because I'm just going to read them rapid fire. But I've got several verses here about humility. Just kind of take a broad swath through some verses in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 4-7. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? That was 1 Corinthians 4-7. James 117 every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows Proverbs 16:18 I've mentioned already pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall Daniel 437. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 6. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. I love the way Peter writes that. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. It's not just that you humble yourself, but you put yourself under God, under God's mighty hand. It's exactly what Psalm 131 is teaching. It's not just that you humble yourself, or that you're not haughty, or that you don't involve yourself in great matters. The reason that you can have a quieted soul that rests like a weaned child upon his mom is because your hope is in the Lord from this time forth and forever. You're humbling yourself under God's mighty hand. Humility is not just set adrift and you're in a boat by yourself being humble, but you are under, to use that great metaphor, you are under the wings of God. You're under his mighty hand when you're humble. You are, as, as Peter again wrote, what we read, you are entrusting yourself to him who judges righteously. That is humility. That is humility. A couple of years ago, I was up in uh, Franklin, Tennessee, at a conference up there. And I was having lunch with a friend uh, there in Franklin, and I, was, I went early so that I could do some work at a local Starbucks there. So I had about a couple of hours to kill uh, doing some work at Starbucks. And usually when I work at a coffee shop, I take my earplugs so that you can kind of just go in and the noise is ambient noise that doesn't really distract you and you can really focus and do some work. Well, I forgot my earplugs. Oh, man. So anyway, I I went in and the, the coffee shop's footprint was really small. And so, you know, there was one table right up at the front that had like uh, probably about six seats around. it Not a lot. And there was one open seat. And I thought, well, that's it. That's what I get. So I sit there. And because I didn't have my earphones, I, I had all these conversations that I had to hear. And I wasn't necessarily eavesdropping. I was just there. And my ears were doing what ears do. You You hear things. And I heard, I overheard six conversations, I counted them in that hour, in those two hours. And I want to share them with you because they were so um, impactful to me. Maybe they were impactful because I usually ignore the conversations, and the first time in a long time I actually listened. But these six conversations led me to asking myself six questions. And I want to share those six questions with you. Because they directly relate to the balance of humility and pride. The first guy that sat down next to me actually came up to talk to me. Usually in a coffee shop, you know, a bunch of strangers sit next to each other, do their own thing. But this guy came up and sat down beside me. And he had, uh, you know, muscles, he had a t-shirt stretched, you know, over his muscles. He was clearly some kind of a bodybuilder or health guy. And he said, uh, you know, I've lived in Nashville all my life. Or actually what he did is he he said, uh, uh, I I simply asked him, do you have enough room? That's it. And he thought I was starting a conversation. So he began to tell me all about his girlfriend, all about his life. Uh, He lived in Nashville all his life, and he finally came down to Franklin to look at some of the Civil War sites. And he asked me if I live here. And I said, no, I said, I live in Dallas. And the look on his face was so disappointed. He thought I was going to give him tips about all the Civil War sites to see. And in like 30 seconds, he was gone. And he went and sat down by another table and began asking them. And they were locals, and he was so thrilled. Because uh, he started in again, girlfriend, Nashville. And uh, they told him all about the Civil War sites, and he was thrilled about that. But here's a question I asked myself. how often do I use friendliness only as a ruse to get what I want? How often do I use friendliness only as a ruse to get what I want? Now, I don't want to answer these questions. They're all rhetorical. So you can just you can just think about them for yourself. The next, on the other side of the table, so this, you know, Mr. Muscles and T-shirt was right here. On the other side of the table, there was a. I guess the coffee shop manager who was doing an annual review for one of the employees right there in public. How would you like to have an an, your annual review done there, and right there, among the public? That's what was happening. And I was kind of embarrassed for this, for this employee. But anyway, the reviewer involved the manager asking you know, some questions. And one of the questions struck me more than others. The manager asked, what do you feel is your greatest asset that you bring to Starbucks? Silence. More silence. Finally, the guy answered, I don't know. (laughs) And then he said, you know, the other employees can answer that. In other words, they're going to tell the boss what he brings, what this guy brings to the table. And so I thought, wow, there's a great question for myself. Do I know myself well enough to understand my unique contribution to my work. And that's not a lack of humility. If you read Romans 12, it talks about the fact that you need to have a... uh, Well, let's read Romans 12. I could paraphrase it and butcher it, but I'd rather just read it. You can turn to Romans 12.3 or listen as I read it to you. Paul says, For the grace given me, I say to every one of you, not to think more highly of himself that he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. In other words, don't think more highly of yourself, but also be realistic. God has gifted you. Do you know that? Do you know your unique contribution? Do you know yourself well enough? The third conversation, there are only six, by the way. The third conversation uh, began with hearing a click, 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 click of a white stick as it was making its way to the table. And this blind, teenage, young woman sat down with her, clearly her teacher. And the teacher was saying, okay, sit here, that's great, all right, here's your here's your, uh, uh, whatever their manipulatives were they were working with. And they began the conversation. And the blind girl took her seat and with an incessant joy spoke about all the good things that were going on in their life. She talked about the good food, the good day, the good time together. Uh, When the blind girl accidentally knocked over her cup, uh, the teacher very calmly picked it up and said, You knocked over your cup? Oh, I'm so sorry. That's okay. And they began working to get... And here's the question. I asked myself, am I joyful with the life God has given me, my own disabilities notwithstanding? Am I joyful with the life God has given me, my own disabilities notwithstanding? Well, their seats had barely gotten cold when two beautiful young women sat down in their spots. And the first young woman, uh, the reason that that I knew who they were, is because when she sat down, she immediately said a curse word, loud enough for Jesus to hear. And I looked up, and she was looking at her cell phone, and her friend next to her was completely unmoved by the fact that her friend had just said what she did. Two beautiful young women who clearly, in their hearts, now here I am, am I being haughty? Clearly in their hearts. They didn't seem to be that beautiful to me after, after their words came out. And so here's the question I asked myself. Do the words that come from my mouth match the exterior that I display to others? Uh, A couple of guys, the next conversation, a couple of guys in ball caps sat down and I could tell by their conversation that they were doctors. And they were talking about some patient that they were uh, uh, having to deal with and uh, what do you think we should do with this? Well, maybe we should do that. And they were clearly talking all this medical stuff that I didn't understand. And then one of the guys just blurted out. He said, my brother died last year, and it just tore me up. And the other doctor was silent for a moment, and then that physician said words that absolutely shocked me. This physician used Scripture so effectively to encourage his friend, quoting verses that lifted up the sovereignty of God and the comfort of God and the promises of God, and his words were rock-solid. I mean, I, I couldn't have said it any better myself at all. And here's the, here's the question that I asked myself following that. God has faithful servants in many, many places. Why do I often assume they only lie within my circle of influence? God's got many who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal all over. We are not the last bastion of evangelical integrity. They're everywhere. God's got his people everywhere, even in Starbucks, even doctors. It's marvelous. The final conversation was <laughs> the funnest. And these this was a group of six Irishmen. Now, there were only three open seats at our table. But somehow all six of those guys squeezed in. One of them, I think, was sharing my seat. Because I could feel, literally feel the warmth of his body while well, he sat. Kind of, kind of gross, but he was right beside me. And they came to Franklin to sightsee, you know, all the Civil War sights they came to see. And as they s- sipped their mochas, you know, I got to listen to their conversation in their thick Irish brogues. And it turned out that the six men had come to Starbucks, but seven men had actually come to town. And they, uh, they said that where, where the other guy went, they said, I went to church. And uh, the, one of the other guys said, Well, what did he go there for? See, for confession. <laughs> and one of the other Irishmen said, I'd better get another coffee then. We'll be here a long time. <laughs> And the whole table laughed just like you just did. And, and I did too. And I noticed, you know, we don't laugh with accents. Everybody laughs the same. So here's the question that I asked myself. At our core, we're all the same. We all laugh and we all have a need to confess to God. This little psalm that David's written is a psalm that we need to filter through all the experiences that we have in our lives. To not have a heart that is proud or eyes that look down on others. To not involve ourselves or feel like we have to involve and control all the situations that we can't control. But rather, we still and quiet our souls like a, like a weaned child rests against his mom. Why can we do that? Because our hope is in the Lord. Every day, this time forth and forever. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for the simple three verses, these these simple three verses that David has written. In the Psalms of Ascent, the songs that were sung repeatedly, and this is one that we need to sing repeatedly, to filter our motives, our thoughts, our actions, intentions through humility to rest and quiet our soul like a weaned child against its mom. Father, we all struggle with pride. We all struggle with that feeling of uh, haughtiness toward others. We all feel like we need to control things that we can't control, and we all struggle with hoping in you versus hoping in ourselves. So as we've spent some time with David's words this morning, I pray that we would carry them with us. And it would not simply be close the book and forget it, but that your words would have their impact and their way in our heart today. And let that help us to be more humble like our Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining me for our third most popular episode of Live the Bible. This week, each day, ask the Lord to set the song of Psalm 131 in your heart. Ask Him to help you filter your motives, your words, and your actions through humility. May He give us eyes of compassion rather than judgment and a spirit of trust rather than control and hope in God rather than hope in ourselves. Only then are we truly going to be at rest. Only two episodes left in our top 10 countdown. Next week, we'll find out if today's headlines mean we're living in the end times. The answer might surprise you. Until then, live the Bible. My friend, I hope you will read the Bible in 2024, and I'd love for us to read it together, seeing the places where it all happened. Check it out now at readingthebiblelands.com.